Welcome to the SIDcast. My name is Sid, Sid Finkelstein. I'm a professor at Dartmouth College, and I've created this podcast that I've always wanted to do. I always wanted to have a podcast because, well, it's not like there's not another couple of hundred thousand podcasts that are out there. But this one is, this one is different because what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to learn about fascinating people you probably never even knew existed. But once you hear about them, you're going to wish you did. In fact, you're going to want to invite them over to your next dinner party. And uh, uh, my guest today is a perfect example of that, Carol Dunn. Carol Dunn is the uh, creative director of Northern Stage, a regional theater uh, that's in Vermont. Uh, but she's done so many fascinating things uh, over the years. And, uh, and I, th- I just thought, boy, I want to have Carol on, uh, on the podcast. I want people to, to listen to her. I want people to learn, learn from her because she's just done so many really interesting things. And uh, when, I'm, when, I, when I reflect about that, that career that she's had and think about uh, kind of what I teach uh, students and, and, and uh, coach a lot of people in my, in my day job, uh, a lot of people kind of think that you can plan things out. Uh, and we teach you to plan, right? We teach you to kind of... Uh, be organized, uh, to have a clear agenda. And, and so uh, sometimes we think we can do that for our lives. Uh, we can choreograph what that life is going to be like. And, you know, more power to you if you, can, uh, if you can do that. But a lot of the learning comes in the ups and downs, the mistakes, the, uh, the lack of follow through, the, the kind of the ad hoc nature of what, uh, what happens in, in, in a life. You know, and uh, in, the case of, uh, in the case of Carol, you know, after she got, she got married, she moved uh, to uh, Cleveland, and her, uh, her husband was a theater professor and took over a uh, theater in, uh, in Cleveland. And Carol was very much into the theater at that time. But guess what? Well, guess what happens? You know, when you're married to the boss, the guy in charge, and you get a small part in the theater, People are wondering, well, why did she get that part? Is it because she's so good, or does she know the right person? And those things are, are can be uh, can really be debilitating because they take away from your confidence. I'm going I'm to make a connection for you. That's kind of weird, but it's 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 I think it's accurate. Uh, there are uh, there are people that are from minority communities, let's say African-American, that get uh, that go to university and we all know about affirmative action. And you think they never hear the, the whispers about saying, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for affirmative action. And it doesn't matter how good they are, it doesn't matter how talented they are, but it eats away at you. Uh, and it's one, of the, it's one of the real one of the real flaws. And somehow you gotta have this, this internal strength to, to elevate yourself, to not let people beat you down. And and that's one of the lessons I think of Carol's uh, Carol's career and Carol's uh, Carol's life. Uh, she was, uh, you know, she is just so resilient. Um, you know, we all make mistakes. Uh, failure is common. There's a woman that, uh, despite all of her her talents, was uh, rejected uh, at the Juilliard School um, at Yale as well when she wanted to do um, wanted to do theater. And uh, she had to, and uh, she also went to Princeton as an undergraduate. So we're talking about some kind of raw talent and intellectual capability. But, you know, not everything went her way, and she had to deal with it. She had to bounce back from it. She had to craft her own career. And there's a word that I think you're going you're gonna to hear me use, use a lot and, and have used a lot in, in, in this podcast, in the podcast series, crafting your life. It's not given to you. You have to create it. You have to craft it. You have to adjust it. And like a master craftsman or a master craftswoman, uh, you, you do parts of the sculpture, and then you adjust, and, or you do a few, a few swaths of, of paint on the, on the canvas and you have to adjust and, and fix and change and move it. And that's what life is. 
I mean, it's not, uh, nobody gives you what the finished product looks like. Uh, and there is actually no finished product when you get right down to it. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're all in process. And I think that's, uh, I think that's an important, uh, I think that's a really important lesson. You know, uh, another thing I love about, about, about Carol is, um, you know, she, she started as a singer as a, as a kid. And what happened is she and her mom were, uh, were, were out at a festival of some type and uh, there was a band playing and, and they were listening and, and, and she, liked, she liked them. And she went up to the band and said, you know, you mind if I sing with you? And who, who asked that as a kid? You know, who asked, who, asked, uh, who asked to do that? But she did that. And next thing you know, she's, she's with the band. They see the talent. They give her that, uh, they give her that opportunity. And one of the, one of the lessons I, I extract from that that I, I use all the time, whether it's in my kind of work around leadership, whether it's my role as a parent, uh, whether it is me coaching, uh, you know, young people early in their career. You know, if you don't ask, you don't get and there's nothing wrong with asking. What's the worst thing that can happen? They tell you no, so you come up with a different way to ask. You come up with a different way and a different angle on the whole thing. But if you don't get yourself in the game, if you're not willing to kind of just do it and, and be willing to, to fail, then, you know, not a lot's going to happen. So I know it's a lot easier to say than, than to do, but um, I think Carol is going to give us some great lessons about that. So uh, we're going to welcome Carol into, uh, into the SIDCast, and we'll have a great, uh, a great chat, I know, with, uh, with her. And I guess if we're really, really nice, we might even ask her to sing a little bit for us, and who knows, maybe she'll do it. Carol Dunn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm such a big fan of the Northern Stage, and I've been uh, uh, going for years and years, and uh, being the artistic director and really the... Uh, um, the person that built it and rebuilt it is really a fascinating story yes, that we'll get you. to. But I want to know where, where, it's, where it kind of starts. When did you know, know that you wanted to be a performer of some type? So I uh, think I realized I wanted to be a performer when I started singing quite young. I was kind of a quiet, shy kid, which is a very typical theater story, P.S. You're, you're serious. I'm very serious, very shy, very quiet, youngest of three girls who were much more out in the community, much more outgoing, big athletes, etc. And uh, I used to listen a lot to Judy Garland when I was growing up. Okay. My parents had records. I didn't have, you know, anything modern. I had old records and a mono, not a stereo to play them on. And so I'd sit upstairs and do craft projects and things and listen to Judy Garland. And when I was in about sixth grade, I was down at a beach event and I heard a band playing and they sounded like Judy Garland's band to me. And I asked them, I asked these men at this band, they were all, they all worked in New York, they're all commuting to jobs and industry, cool. et cetera, and this was their band. They asked me, I, I said, could I sing with you all? And they said, yes, what would you like to sing? And I said, how about The Man That Got Away, which is an old torch song that a, a woman left by a man sings. How, how does that go? The night is bitter. Oh. The stars have lost their glitter. Oh, so there that. I am, sixth grade, shy kid, and I sang with this band, and they said yes. Okay, how, how'd you have the guts to stand up and even ask them in the first place? You know, I think just passion. I loved the music, right? That was something it I It was in found. you, and you just felt like it had to get out. And I'd never heard a band playing it live. So it was that passion, right? I hear a trumpet player. I hear this piano. I'd never been near a band like that before. So that's, it was sort of that voice that said, give mm -hmm. it a try. Carol, did you, were you thinking about this ahead of time? You just saw them and it kind of said. Completely just saw them. Absolutely unplanned. Yeah. 
Right. There's a lot of things and there's a lot of lessons in life uh, when it comes to that idea. Just kind of going for it, trying it. From I mean, the gut. Right. What's what's the worst thing that can happen? It doesn't work. Big deal. And you know what's really interesting about it is I didn't know it was working when it started. No. I just was singing. And then slowly but surely people started gathering around and I saw this crowd gather around and I realized I had a voice that I didn't know I had had. And that was kind of a miracle moment for my family. My parents remember, they said, we didn't know you could sing. They, they were there? Mm -hmm. that, so they heard you? From the beach, someone said, Irene, your daughter's singing. Get over there. <laughs> it was a total surprise. How long was that first performance? About five minutes long. And again, it was magical in that I then became this singer for this band, and they were mentors right. to me. When you were singing, um, I don't know if you remember exactly that moment. I bet you do. Yeah. What were you looking at? Um, I've always wondered about this also for performers. They're in their head, they're in their space, they have the flow, but are they connecting with someone in the audience? No, we're usually connecting with who we're singing to. So I'm sure I was singing to the boy I must have had a crush on that <laughs> week. It was probably yes. Topher Callahan or someone from my house. Uh-oh, <laughs> he's going to find us. <laughs> you know, the sixth grade crush. And uh, that's we don't connect as much to the audience in a personal way. It's more, how do I want to make this person feel? So I'm sure I was dreaming. Right. But when I'm in the audience, yeah. I feel like a great performer is talking or singing directly to me. Yes. That is, if I'm, if I'm looking out across to you, and I'm sure this is true in business speeches also, I think, how do I want to make the other feel, which is you in the audience? Right, right. So sometimes it's, I want help. I want to sing and pour my heart out and sort of get emotion coming back from the audience to make things better. Or I want to melt your heart. Or I want to share a feeling with you. Yeah, it's yeah. an action. It's interesting you, you say, you know, in business when you're giving a speech. Yeah. Uh, it really is similar. And the thing that many people don't have or don't understand is that it's all about emotions. It's not about your rational, genius ideas. Of course, you've got to have something good to say. But if you're not connecting interpersonally and emotionally with people... Um, they're not going to get it. They're, gonna, they're not going to buy whatever it is you're selling implicitly. I totally agree. And do you in business ask yourselves before you go out to make a speech, what do I want? How am I going to get it? I mean, are there certain yeah, things So in my case, I'm students? a little different in, in that um, I'm not running a company. I'm a professor and yeah. I write books. And so I go out and I give a lot of keynote speeches yeah. to people all, all over the place. And I want them to get my message. I want yep. them to know this message. And I want them to, 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 to be open to the idea of actually doing something about that. Yeah. And so, you know, eye contact is one thing. Yes. But you want, you want to personalize it I in agree. Some way. It's that emotional want. And, and, and so I do think about that uh, a lot. Yeah. And, and this is also interesting. So I'm not a performer every day like Yes, like you, you are. are. Yeah, good answer right there. I'm not a performer every day with respect to a keynote speech. Uh, I don't yeah. do that every day, although I do it a lot. Um, but I, I do think about it, and I try to remind myself also, because, you know, usually you're sitting by the side. Some big honcho is introducing you to a, to a crowd, and, and then you walk up the steps. There's some polite applause, and, you know, people are still chattering. Some people are on their phones. Uh -huh. And then you get up, and you got to capture them. Yes. And um, I find that to be one of the most fun things, because it happens uh, almost always. Yes. And, and, and I think it happens because you connect with them personally. I agree. Yeah. I agree. That's exciting. So, okay, you're, so you, you were yeah, singing? Yes, so I was a singer. For how long? Um, I, I sang with that band for about six years. But really it was the, 
it was opening a door to something I didn't know I had. So then I followed that trajectory and I started getting involved in theater and, and doing plays like the normal kid, right? Summer theater and high school theater and things like that. And then it got pretty serious with me and I felt like I wanted to grow up and be Meryl Streep or Patti LuPone. That was where it led. Nothing like some good role models out there, right? <laughs> Judy Garland, Meryl Streep, Patti LuPone. Wow. <laughs> I think, but don't we all have these heroes, it's I think? It's 100% true. I'm, I'm not a very good, uh, I was never a very good basketball player mm-hmm. or a hockey player, but I wanted to be, you know, um, I wanted to imagine, be like Mike. I mean, it's a whole advertising campaign, yeah. but I grew up in Canada, in Montreal, uh-huh. and uh, hockey, ice hockey is what it's all about. That is. And uh, I remember watching Jean Beliveau and Yvon Cornoyer and Jacques Lemaire and all these people, and I could barely skate, but I would imagine I was them. That's absolutely what's always worked for me. I like to see somebody ahead doing it. Yeah, uh, but you did it. Well, I didn't do it that way, which is another interesting thing. I mean, in order to be Patti LaPone or um, Meryl Streep, I was going to go straight into acting for the rest of my life. And so a lot of I had a lot of left and right turns and some disappointments that actually led me to running theaters. So what is different about the, I mean, maybe it's not a reasonable thing to say Meryl Streep because she's a legendary sure. actress, but any professional successful actress yeah. uh, or singer. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's a talent difference, but the question is how big is the difference in talent from the person we see at the Academy Awards and yes. the Golden Globes and the Emmys and the Tonys and all the rest versus uh, uh, someone who's excellent at uh, summer stock theater or, yeah. or regional theater uh, or even in high school or college? Is the talent difference that gigantic? Sometimes no, absolutely not. I think a lot of it is a life view. So somebody like Patti LuPone, who was Evita, um, you know, mm. when I was growing up in that original Andrew Lloyd Webber, it's not just the talent, it's the vision to make the talent go the places it needs to go. And the willingness to sacrifice to have a certain lifestyle. So what happened to me is I didn't want to live in New York and audition every day and never ultimately have control over my career because still Meryl Streep gets hired by someone to do a play or or, or a movie. Mm. And after living some years knowing that I would never have the ability to sort of make my own garden grow, I'm a little Voltaire-y, um, <laughs> I, I moved away from acting as my sole source of inspiration. But talent... There's a lot of talent out there, but I think it's the complete package of knowing where you want your talent to land, how you want it to grow, and making sure all of those goals are in alignment. Right, alignment and and being willing to make the immense sacrifices and probably deal with endless failure. Endless failure, endless not knowing what's going to happen. I couldn't stand that. You couldn't stand that. Mm -mm. And do you think that that's part of the journey for, again, it's unreasonable saying Meryl Streep because she's kind of a one of a kind but any right. um, actor or actress that uh, is yes I think certain people decide at a certain moment that the risk is worth it and they can live with it and they can be at peace with it I think it's really about listening yeah, to our yeah, insides yeah. don't you I wonder now about uh, this idea of dealing with failure and so for example in the world of baseball if you hit that ball three out of ten times you're a big star mm-hmm. me- meaning you failed seven out of uh, seven out of ten times right. and golf uh, golf is a game of, of failure. Mm-hmm. Um, players will miss a putt, will just not hit the fairway, and you got to completely, totally forget the last thing you did because if it lingers with you, then you can't really execute at, at the level that, that, that you have to. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe what we're talking about here in terms of performing, uh, and, and these are tryouts, um, um, 
it's similar in that you have to kind of forget about it and be able to do that. Um, but they're kind of bigger one-ofs. They don't happen, you know, in game. There's You get three, four, five chances in the space of three hours. Right. You, that doesn't happen for, you know, for auditions. No, but I don't really think about failure much in the arts because you're right, there's so much failure, but the failure is always a learning experience. So tell, tell, tell us about that. Well, I think some of my biggest failures, I've had a couple of big ones. One was... I really wanted to go to one of the great drama schools in the country. I wanted to go to Yale or Juilliard. I'd gone to Princeton undergrad, and I felt like, oh, well, I'll just yeah, hop I over to this. one of those other schools. Yeah. You know, I saw my friends in business going to those schools. Um, and I didn't even get called back. And I remember walking down 8th Avenue after my Juilliard audition, and in the middle of the audition, the uh, the man across the table from me was interrupted me and said, are you finished in the middle of my Shakespeare oh, that's monologue? Side of the, that's that was a movies. bad day, yeah. right? That was a bad failure. I remember walking down 8th Avenue and feeling like that is devastating. My whole life vision has just been sort of taken away mm. from me. Well, I ended up going to a lesser known graduate school, had incredible teachers. It was paid for, so I didn't have debt. And I wound up being more interested in regional theater because of that original failure. So I'm a big believer in a failure isn't necessarily a failure, is mm -hmm. it? Yeah, failure can just, if you manage it, if you can handle it, right? You Learn that, from that it. Resilience, resilience. It opens up, it will open up doors that would not have opened up uh, otherwise. That's right. If I'd gotten into Yale or Juilliard, I pretty much guarantee you I'd be a New York City actress right now. Yeah. And I'm glad I'm not. Yeah, yeah. You know, it also makes me think about it's a different context. So as, a, as an academic, as a scholar, you write a lot of articles. And I remember as a junior faculty member, I must have been only a year or two out of a PhD, my first academic job, I wrote this um, paper. It was based on two or three years of work, like a big paper sent to the top journal in the field. And the, the way this works is you get comments, detailed, like three, four, five, eight pages long of comments from each reviewer, and you typically have three reviewers. It's an unbelievable thing. Brutal. And then there's a, an editor that kind of piles on if he or she wishes to. And so I got these three sets of reviews from other academics, well-known academics, and they were mixed. They were, you know, some things good, some things you could work on. Uh, but then the editor piled on and said, you know, I'm rejecting this paper. And the editor, that's their decision. They get to do that. And um, this is decades ago, but I still remember what he wrote. He said, this paper is a veritable catalog of methodological errors. Isn't that a sentence? Oh, my gosh. Now, that's, uh, that, that's kind of like you child abuse. You feel that abuse. in your stomach. That's child abuse. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that, uh, here I am, this kind of fresh young scholar ready to kind of conquer the world, yeah. and the guy hammers me over the head with completely unnecessary criticism. And my reaction was, well, hell with him. I'm just getting back up and going to fix this. I'm going to send it somewhere else. And, um, and that's what I did. But Good for you. If you. If you don't have that, you know, to hell with everyone else attitude sometimes, yeah. it's arrogance. Yeah. Uh, which is very interesting because, you know, you know, arrogance is generally a bad thing. Right. Uh, overconfidence can get you in trouble. But, and, and let me, I want to know what you think in the context of theater and performing, but um, it's almost like sometimes you need to be able to draw on this kind of inner steel that says, you know, I don't give a damn. I'm just going to do this. I agree with you, and I wish I'd had more of that when I was younger, but I took that Yale and Juilliard as you don't have any talent. I really did. did. And even when I had teachers like you had when I was in college, and I don't know, I was one of those, I was a really good kid. I was a straight A student. So if I ever, you know, didn't please a professor or something, I was devastated. Mm. So I didn't have that arrogance. I was a, very much a pleaser. And my college professors were pretty hard on me um, in my acting classes. And I took that at first to I mean you have no talent. Wow. Yeah. So it took me years to get over that, and I don't really know where... 
I think it had to do with being that kind of perfectionism, that anything less than perfect, and that's what our students have now. I teach at Dartmouth also, and, right. you know, so perfectionism is a bad thing because then you don't completely. have that room oh my God. to say, all right, I'm going to go send my paper somewhere else. Yeah, perfectionism, it's you know, we... Thing. We drive towards being great, and to get into universities like Dartmouth and plenty of others too, yeah. you got to be like unbelievably great. Yes. And um, yeah, perfectionism just drives you towards not being able to accept any type of failure. Yes. Right. And and uh, no one's ever perfect. In fact, it's the pathway to try to get there that's all the fun. But not everybody gets that. It takes years sometimes, maybe lifetime for someone to understand a thing like yes. that. Yes. You know, it, I mean, it's kind of stereotypical, or, or you know. Um, um, it's the journey, and that, that it's counts. totally. But it's true. Yeah, and I do worry about that with our students that yeah, they don't right. allow themselves to fail. So, absolutely, we have to be able to have these terrible moments and and move on. And I would say, in my story, it took me a long time. I'd say most of my twenties were somewhat clouded by that feeling, like you're you didn't get where you were gonna you were supposed to go. You didn't reach that thing. Did anyone say that to you? No. You said it to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. High, high performers are the most critical of themselves. Yeah. That's, that's the perfectionism I side. I have another right? story that's really awful. I went to high school with Moby, <laughs> that big pop star, Moby. Um, You're looking te- at me and you know I'm I sorry. have no clue who this guy no is. Is it a man? He's a man. Okay, Moby, and very come to my come on the podcast. Music. And we'll know who you are. And and I had just I was probably thirty nine, and I just moved to this area, mm. and was working as a, a teacher and a freelance actor. And I got a phone call from VH1 was doing a show called Where Are They Now? And I had been most likely to succeed from my high school or middle school yearbook, and Moby was. Uh, quiet kid. Well, he was now He's the superstar, famous, apparently. And they were calling to see how oh bad my, my life was. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? No, I cannot. And so I <laughs> remember oh. going, I don't think I want to be on your show, because that was there. And happily, that show was never made. They didn't follow yeah. through with that idea. But that, it lingered with me a long time. And that can happen if your perception of yourself and what success is is so narrow. Yeah, wow. That's a scary... That's Isn't a scary that brutal? Movie. Yeah. Who comes up with ideas like this? People who don't get the show made because it was such a bad, stupid idea. Let's talk about ideas. <laughs> Where do you get your ideas? Because you, you, mm-hmm. you're not only a performer, an actress, mm-hmm. um, a, a director, but you've also written. Uh, not much. A little bit? A little bit. I mean, I write a lot of speeches and stuff, but I have not written... I, I wrote a show that I was in once, but I'm not a great writer, to be really honest with well, you. Well, let me ask but you... I, the, mm-hmm. Sorry. Oh, let me ask you the directing process then. Yes. Um, you're, not re, you're not rewriting the screenplay, let's say, but right. you're interpreting it. Absolutely. There's a, there's a kind of a major creative thing going on here. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, and, and that's based on saying, well, I want to do it this way or this way, or I don't want to do this. How do you can, can you walk us through that thought process? I will, and I think it comes more down to the gut. You asked me when we started the talk about what got me to get up and sing. Yep. It, it was my gut. And so after years and years of acting and then adding directing and then adding teaching, and actually, and I could talk to you about all of the day jobs I had too, which add to this whole picture, I really follow my gut. And I think just like when we give a speech to an audience, I think, what? 
what do I want the audience to feel in this production of Dear Elizabeth we just did, the poems of Elizabeth Bishop? Oh, good. So how do I want people to feel? How do I want um, them to relate to the characters? And then I follow my gut, and I say, I know that if we do this scene in this way, and the two actors are far away from each other, that there's a loneliness that will happen in the lighting and in the the right. solitude that we create on stage, right. that you then as an audience member will, will feel. And yes. so I've really learned to trust my gut, also to ask my team around me. Collaboration has become a big yes. part and trusting people. Um, so the whole creative process for me is having a big enough ego that I don't have an ego. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's like right out of super bosses. That's how good that oh, is. Oh, is it? <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, the, the best leaders are people that are so self-confident that they can step aside and make room for other people. That's what I try and to that's do. And that's hard to do. And trust my actors and get out of their way. Give them enough, but walk away, come back to the show two weeks later and say, oh my gosh, it's so much better now that I've let go. And you get so much buy-in and loyalty from people when they're And they part do of that better process. work. They do better work. And I think that's very rare in the theater world. I'm going to say this. I'm going to put that out there, that in the performing arts, egos can be humongous. Mm -hmm. And I've worked in so many theaters where the egos are bigger than maybe um, the talent sometimes. Really? Mm-hmm. And so, or equal, and they get in each other's way. Right, right. Um, and, and so you are purposely dealing with that. Yeah, very um, much so. And... I mean, were you always like like that? I mean, you had to have pretty strong ego to go up to that band and say, can I, can I sing with you guys? I guess somewhere I had one bit of ego. I did. Yeah. I had a little bit of a belief in myself. I'll also say my husband, who was one of my professors in graduate school, but I did not date him when we were in graduate school, in case anybody's asking. Um, That's but, actually quite uh, important to point out. Well, I in, think in he... 2018, I do 2019. too. But he, one of the lessons he gave me was that have an ego that's big enough not to have an ego. And I remember yeah. watching him direct and the room was happy when he was directing mm. plays mm. and usually theater rooms are fraught with fear really yeah and so a really happy rehearsal hall is somewhat of a rarity in the where, theater. Where does the fear come from? Fear of, um, fear of not getting the job again. Fear that you're not pleasing the maestro, the director, whose ego is so big they might bully you around a bit or mm. tell you exactly how mm. to do it. So you get that, you know, it comes from the top, and the top sets the tone. Right. And in the performing arts, like ballet, et cetera, there's always been a lot of fear. I won't hire you again. Uh, I, I'm going to fire you. We've never fired an actor at Northern Stage since I've been there, but many companies fire they actors do. all the time. Do you think there's something of an imposter syndrome going on here where the, the performer, maybe because you get beaten down so much, mm -hmm. you start to feel like, you know, I don't actually deserve this, mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of your mindset, so when, when, when something tough happens, mm -hmm. you, you, you back down and you don't kind of step up and try to address it. Like, you know what I mean? By yeah. That? Yeah. You have to read your audience in the theater. And I'd say a lot of actors do not stand up for themselves because mm. of the fear of um, being fired. And there was a case recently in New York where an actor who asked for um, you know, some extra uh, sort of not kindness, but just better working conditions on a Broadway show. I won't talk about it exactly right now. Um, ended up getting fired and bad things happened. And so, yes, standing up for yourself is a tricky thing in the theater because you might not get hired again. So here we are, a creative industry, yeah. the center of creativity, and we have a hierarchical system with the director yes. being the bigger than the CEO is in the company. Maestro, yeah. The maestro, even. Yep. Right? Isn't that kind of, kind of odd? That's not the way most people think about it. I, I certainly don't think about it that way. Um, I think it's changing. 
And I think that there is much more collaborative work in the theater now. And I also think that if the, if the director is that good, one of those that good people, it is collaborative um, in a way that the actors trust this person so right, much. Right. I do think some of it is old school, and I wonder if, um, you know, we all see those movies with the, the sort of ballet mistress, you know, screaming at the students. Yes. Or I do th- believe it's all changing. But ultimately in the arts, collaboration will only get you so far. You actually need to get behind a single vision ultimately for a successful show. And that's the vision of the maestro, it of is. the director. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? So it I have two, two kind of anecdotes about it. One specific about ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, I don't know, a dozen years ago, I was interested in um, how teams and leadership works in the ballet. And so I went, I don't, can't remember why, but I went to the Memphis uh, Ballet. I was invited. I must have met someone. I, I was invited there, and I worked, and I observed and worked with the choreographer, but I watched the choreographer and watched the ballet dancers. And I spent two days just sitting on the sidelines watching, taking notes, and uh, the choreographer was absolutely the king. I have never seen a more powerful person in a team. Right. And I've been around a lot of companies and giant companies and tough CEOs. I've never seen, I've never seen that kind of one-sided. It was all absolutely listening to and paying it. And it's kind of what you're saying, right? Yes. Maybe it's fear of, of, of um, be, maybe a, f- a fear of being fired, but it also could be a fear that, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't live up to this person's vision, and right? And maybe I'm brought up that way in this industry, right. if you will. Yes. That's kind of how it works. That's how I was trained as a little kid, and yeah. that, that's kind of in me. Absolutely. So it's very much what you're saying. And and often these, I bet this choreographer was inspiring. Were you inspired by this I, presence? I thought it was amazing. Well, that's so key. And in art, art, you can't hold art. You can't, you can't feel it. You can't. So, so finding someone who holds up sort of a lantern for you to follow yes. and that you become better by following this person is very powerful. So there is a um, downside or a risk here that goes beyond kind of the, the, the personal performer trying to live up to his or her capability. And, and the risk I'm thinking about is some form of abuse, verbal or otherwise. Absolutely. And I have another um, industry example, which is actually similar in many ways high-end cooks, high-end chefs in top restaurants. That's a, that's a work of art when you see what they're doing. And the, the chef industry, the, re, the high-end restaurant industry, has really been going through a lot of turmoil because maybe, you know, you've read some of these stories as well about the Mario Batali's of the world. Famous, um, you know, world-class, legendary almost, you know, chefs that are being called out for sexual harassment or, or worse. And um, I've been around a lot of chefs for, it's another one of my hobbies for... Um, for so-called research, but uh-huh. it's just fun to hang out. And uh, and th- there's in the kitchen there is one unqualified dictator, and that is the head chef. And all your uh, when when you're working with that chef, there's only two an- there's only one answer acceptable, which is yes, chef. You you don't disagree, you don't suggest something else. It's not a collaborative team. It's yes, chef, no matter what it is. Yeah. And that has led to. Uh, I think quite directly, and I think there's more and more of a recognition of this among some people in the restaurant business, has led to some forms of, well, certainly verbal abuse and and maybe, you know, physical or, 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 or sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my, my question is, in, in, in your world, in the theater and arts and performing, uh, I mean... There's been a lot of yes, chef, in the theater. There's been a lot. And there's been a lot of abuse in the theater. And I felt it. I worked in toxic places where it was yeah. yes, chef. But then I would say, is it, you know, is it ego 
Is it possible for a chef to be collaborative? Because it is possible for a theater leader to be more collaborative. And I believe I'm part of a wave. Part of it is, you know, being a woman leader. I think we have a different style. And I think women in theater have a little bit of a different style, which we can talk about. But when I set out to run theaters, I actually actively set out to run a theater that was good to its people, that raised its artists up rather than abused them, because I went through so many crummy experiences myself when I was younger in, as a working actress. Yeah, very interesting. There is a, there is a small movement, and I mean, it's is picking up steam among some of the most well-known chefs, restaurant chefs, uh, to try to recognize and, and do something about the, cul- the, they call it the culture of the kitchen. You know, Rene uh, Redzepi, who's the head chef kind of the genius at Noma, one of the top restaurants in the world in Copenhagen, and uh, Jose Andres, who's kind of another giant uh, restaurateur. Um, there are a couple of people I know of that are leading this, uh, this process. Well, uh, I want to take a, a short break. When we come back, uh, I do want to talk about um, your experience as a, as a woman, uh, as a leader as a woman, and also the extent to which you've been able to empower other female leaders. Absolutely. So we'll be back in a minute. We're back with Carol Dunn um, after that very long break. Uh, so, Carol, uh, we were just beginning to talk a little bit about leadership and, and you as a leader and, and, and a leader that happens to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your thinking, your philosophy. And I know you've done uh, a lot of work and a lot of thought on exactly this issue around female leadership. Well, absolutely. I I came to theater leadership. uh, I'm the Julia Child of theater leadership. I was 42 when I ran my first theater, the New London Barn Playhouse. It was a summer stock theater, and I got the opportunity to really turn it around because it was an 80-year-old theater that was in bad shape. And uh, so I I didn't have time to think about my leadership style. I just had to go in and fix this place. But I was coming from a background of... Uh, egotistical, sort of abusive theaters. Summerstock can be a very abusive thing. You work a million hours a day. You're not paid well. You're cleaning the toilets in between shows. Uh, I mean, it's a crazy thing, Summerstock, in the theater industry. Wow. It's where we all sort of you flexed gotta, our muscles and learned our... you got to pay your dues there. Is that why people do, are doing this? Yes, but you should not be housed in a place that doesn't have a bathroom and have to walk across the road. I mean, there are all kinds of things. So I would say... I decided to make a summer theater that was uh, good to its artists, and I believed from the very beginning that if we said yes, the whole idea of yes was very important to me, um, yes and, and that if I were kind to people auditioning and kind to my artists and treated them well and treated audiences well, that we could make a better theater company, and it worked. So I think that comes from knowing that the world doesn't have to be a dictatorship and that there's something to learn from being open to the people you're working with. Um, so that was a big turnaround you that said theater. you used the term yes and, mm. which I think is a pretty well-known term in your world, isn't it? <laughs> no, not in theater, but it's becoming so. It's I would become... say it was a, theater used to be a no. We can't do it. We don't have the money. We don't have the time. We can't afford it. And a board of directors saying, no, you can't do it. No one's heard of it. You know what I was thinking of is, you know, Second City, the big comedy improv yes. troupe. They, they're all about yes and. Oh, most, yeah. And they've been training um, people in all walks of life, including in business, yeah. because the typical thing is, well, yeah, that's a great idea, but, mm-hmm. you know, this and this and this and this. And, and improv teaches you uh, to always say and think yes and, because you got to go with whatever you're at. And, and, and actually running an organization, if you're always saying but, 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 it's not going to get people in. I think but was totally, because it's not for profit, 
You have no resources. So it's always been but. It's always been but. Now, yes, and has gotten us into some trouble. I'm in my second theater. I'm running Northern <laughs> Stage right now. And sometimes you say yes, and so much. And so many things happen that your staff is exhausted. And I really have to look around. And we're all speaking to each other now saying, OK, let's slow down. Let's really put this through our, our mission statement and all of the things, our core values, before we keep going with things. Um, but so, I, I, you know, I set out to, to run theaters, and I somehow became a turnaround person. I've turned around two theater companies, and that's sort of my great claim to fame. But it was all through the idea of audience engagement, treating people well, listening to our audiences, and hopefully, I know this sounds like Pollyanna, making our theater companies sort of the happiest place to be in the world. That matters to me. That someone walks in and goes, this is a happy, great place. I want to be here. So that is interesting. Happiness leads to success. I think so. Yeah. It has for me and it has yeah, in yeah. these 12 seasons of running theaters. And it has for my company members who say when they come to work at Northern Stage, they've never worked at a theater company with this kind of an atmosphere. Hmm. That's a great thing to hear. So you I were at, it. it was New London you were at first. It was the New London Barn for seven years. And, that's the, and that was like... In pretty bad shape when you showed up. $500,000 deficit, falling down ceilings. I was hired in, a Febu in February, and I spent the first couple months putting bunk beds together, cleaning, throwing things out, trying to find a staff. It was trial by fire. Why did you take this job? Because nobody had ever mentored me to become a leader, and I think it was the only job I could have gotten to be a theater leader. I once asked a teacher to mentor me towards theater leadership, and he said, I really think I would mentor a man, so no. Somebody said that. He said it. Yeah. And, I'm, yeah. that, and it's probably not you know, a million years ago either. No. And so, I, I, you know, going back to my idea of what failure and success was, mm -hmm. because of that, I think I just didn't see myself as running a place. So I took the worst job in the world. Yeah, you know what's interesting is there's research. It wasn't about, the worst. I was being dramatic, yeah. but I took a it was, really hard one. It was a one. tough job. It was a, you were being <laughs> dramatic, really. Uh, there is research uh, the, to, to suggest that um, many women that are promoted to the CEO position uh, get that job because there are not a lot of people who want it. I think that's true. You look at General Motors and Mary Barra, who's done a great job at yes. GM. GM was almost bankrupt. Well, who wants that? Um, it's a um, virtually impossible job with the onslaught of Japanese and German cars and, and the financial crisis and all that. Uh, so, yeah, this, uh, uh, this is not an unusual thing. I really think it's true. And I also saw myself always as a scrapper. I mean, I used to work midnight till 7 in the morning as a paralegal. I was a personal assistant to people. I worked at Carnegie Hall in development. So I had all of these. I, I think some... Some women probably are used to being scrappers, or and I had kids, so I did a lot of part-time things right. while I was raising mm -hmm. my children. So it all kind of put a profile together. But um, it was a joy, and I think after about three months there, I realized I actually was good at it, that I could run a theater, that it was a good fit for me. It's one of the most wonderful things when that happens, when you're given, or in your case, you took a job that's really, really hard, and you make it work. Yeah. And you know what happens when people do that? They often, and I think you're alluding to this, they often think, there's nothing I can't do. I just yeah. did this. I mean, yeah, I, give me more. I mean, yeah. I, let's keep going. It, you become this kind of this kind of machine, and not in a, in a bad way, but you, you get this big appetite of capability, of self-confidence. Yes. Things that, um, and, and I'm not talking about you specifically, but things that research shows, mm -hmm. uh, again, 
uh, is a big problem with women in leadership and women executives, which is self-confidence. Yeah. Uh, lots of research. Great book called The Confidence Code talks about this in detail and references all kinds of studies that, that have been done. And one of the things that I always advocate for uh, both male and female senior leaders is that you need to make sure part of your job is to is to look for some of that great talent that happen to be women and make sure you know that uh, on average their confidence level is not going to be equal to um, uh, an equally talented man. Of mm -hmm. course, there's variation. Everyone's different. But research is kind of overwhelming in, in terms of the pattern. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I found that after about three months, I did have that confidence. But the way I think of it is not confidence. It's more trusting my gut. Like, I, I really think of it almost as more of a spiritual thing. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there's confidence of being able to get a job done. Right. But I think what you and I were talking about from the beginning of this is just that inner voice you know, that I, if I'm going to direct a play, I sort of trust that I will do it in a way that will work for my audiences. But it's not that I'm the best director in the world. It's just that I trust my own ability to direct my way. A lot of people talk about this, this trust your gut, go with your gut, which is what Much we're saying. Much more of that. Versus kind of being analytical. Not um, analytical at all. Know, I'm not. You're not. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and I don't think that's my gift. Uh, I think I'm, I can read a room really well. I can read an audience really well. I can read spreadsheets well. Hmm. Um, but it, I find it a little bit more spiritual that I'm in the right place at the right time uh, now creating something that is going to grow. And I've been in places where nothing's going to grow, and I think you have to walk away. I wonder whether there's a generation of people coming up that are that are being brought up on iPhones and iPads and, and analytics and all the rest that almost would, would, would think it's not possible what you're talking about because analytics is going to, an artificial intelligence, they'll figure it all out. You're talking about something that is, uh, it's, it's, you use the word spiritual, it's, it's got, it's, I call it analog as opposed to digital leadership. Yeah. And, um, um. I think in the end of the day, the more digital we become, the more analytical we become, this skill set's going to become even more important. Yeah, I'm terrified. I mean, I was talking with my children yesterday. I have a 14-year-old and an 18-year-old about my spirituality this time of year. Not religion, just spirituality. Yes. And they both sort of were teasing me and almost, you know, saying, oh, mom, that's so stupid. But it's really a huge part of my existence is that I believe that the world is a very spiritual place. Mm. Uh so I think they're a little bit typical that way. You can't Google it and get you can't you know, the answer, <laughs> what it is yeah. exactly. Well, I've, I've always thought that people people have to believe in something. Whether they like it or not, they have to. Not, some people will believe in an organized religion. Some people will believe in the fellow in their fellow man. Some people will believe in themselves. Yeah. Uh, some people will believe in, in the environment as the single most important thing. You have to, if, if you don't believe in something, then I, I don't know. There seems to be a big big vacuum in, in, in one's life if you don't have that. And if you believe in something like when I was younger and I believed I was a brilliant actress, fine, but that only gets you so far. I actually now believe that the arts have the power to make the world a much better place, a much better place. And I didn't come around to that until later, but that works for me and for my life a lot better than just believing in myself. Right. It, it, it makes right. everything make sense. It makes the sacrifices make sense. Makes and the lifestyle make sense. And this is what I'm thinking of as well. You know, believing in yourself, we've talked about that. I think that's really important. But we're also talking now, when, especially when you talk about spirituality, talking about believing something bigger than us. Absolutely. Something that's going to last longer than our, our time. Mm -hmm. And uh, not everyone, you know, I, I wonder about people that say, well, I'm, I'm an atheist, which is fine. That's a form of religion also. Yeah. But what do you believe in? What, what is replacing it? There's got to be it's got to be something. Otherwise, all we're doing is, you know, going through our years. If we're lucky, we get a lot of them. And the world's not better or worse, and we haven't had an impact. And what, what's the point? 
You know, so my husband and I lived in Cleveland for 10 years. He was the artistic director of the Mm -hmm. Cleveland Playhouse. And I had some really personally, I'd say, artistically fallow years in Cleveland. I was married to the big cheese. And so anytime I performed at the Cleveland Playhouse, I asked myself, does the audience just think she's there because she's married to the boss? So I really put myself through 10 years of, okay, don't work at the Cleveland Playhouse all the time. Make sure you work out here. Make sure you learn how to direct a play at a local community theater. And I really sort of put myself through um, the paces of re- inventing who I was because of this marriage, because of how I was seen. But ultimately, it really wasn't until I moved east and we left that and Peter was no longer in that position that I kind of felt the freedom to then grow my own garden. And I do. I get back to the end of Candide, only you can make your garden grow, Voltaire. That is my life philosophy. And it came from finding that there are fallow times when no matter how talented you are and how gifted you are, You know, I got more bad reviews as an actor in Cleveland than I ever have in my life. And and it was really because I was married to the artistic director. I had actually had a great acting career there, and my the people I worked for loved me. But that ground was not the most fertile for me, right? Right, right, It was for him at that time. Mm -hmm. And so all of these tools have sort of come together to form my life philosophy. Only you can make your garden grow. And I feel that as a leader, the day that the Northern Stage isn't growing under my leadership, I hope that I have the humility to leave because I think that's a difficult Mm -hmm. thing too. That's very, very difficult, especially when you have built it into what it is is today, which is almost certainly one of the top regional theaters in the the country. Well, getting there. Well, uh, just just say thank you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Okay, thank you. so uh, you've spent some time and think about uh, female empowerment, uh, other leaders, other women, and I know it's also an, an, an issue in terms of finding talent. Yeah. We live in the Upper Valley, you know, for those pe- people who don't exactly know where it is, it's out there. Yes. We're closer to, uh, to Canada than we are New York City, yeah. and um, it's not the most diverse place in the world. No. Uh, yeah, I'm working with so when I when I I this is year 12 of running of running theaters now. Um it's really because of my story because I felt that I was such a scrapper coming up. And when I took over Northern Stage, you didn't ask what shape that is was okay, in when I started. Okay, go ahead. About a $500,000 deficit. That seems standard for you. Almost no staff. Um you know, we were in an opera house that was really we weren't even allowed to walk in the rafters anymore to hang the lights. So it was it was the job that I I wonder if anybody else would have taken. Um and I, I just looked at my experience and felt that nobody really did hold sort of a, a, a lantern up for me. I Googled a lot of my leadership and business books. Mm-hmm. I read a lot on my own. So I've been working with the Pussycat Foundation. Helen Gurley Brown was the editor of Cosmo yes. Magazine, and she left um, her money to a foundation to help women leadership. Um, There's a big educational component, um, kids who don't have resources. Those are their three areas. And I proposed that we have a program to help women become leaders in the American theater. And it is called the Bold Theater Women's Leadership Circle. It's a $250,000 grant for five theaters every year for a three-year cohort. And we'll do another cohort after that. And my hope, it's all about mentoring 
just mentoring women. So I hire young women to come and work with me at Northern Stage, and I teach them how to be CEOs, not just artists, not just, but see, you're looking at me because I've never gone to business school, and I can't believe I'm <laughs> training people to be CEOs. So sign me up at Tuck. But um, I'm listening, and but I'm you impressed. have to walk into a room yeah. as a CEO. Right. Confidence or no confidence, yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got to act that yeah. leadership, and that's really what I'm trying to teach and actually use those business terms. And um, it's working so far, and I have amazing women coming up, but there hadn't been that system of, of mentorship, I don't think. So can you, can you share an example or two of what it is you're teaching them or doing or, or presenting to them? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That that theater is a business, and no one's going to think you're a great artist so if first your of all, company are, is bankrupt. Are they performers? And that's great. No one's going to think you're a great Artist, 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 if, if your, your company is bankrupt. No one's going to think you're a great CEO if your company is bankrupt. Nobody's right. going to think you're a great anything if you're not successful. That's that's kind of table stakes. Sometimes we do forget that. So that's, We do forget that's it. That's smart. And artistic directors have gotten away with it. I'm the maestro. I've got the vision. It's your problem if it didn't make money. You figure it out, board members. You figure it out. So uh, I'm the anti. I'm, like a, I'm the anti I'm shaking my head on that one. I mean, that's just a great formula for failure. That is right. And that's how so many theaters have, you know, huge deficits. So some of these women that you've been hiring, they, they come from um, performing Usually performers, and then they become freelance directors. Uh, and so they've, they've gotten all of their artistic vision is working and fabulous, but they don't know how to run a business. So that's where we start. We say, this is a business, and this is how you actually run a business. This is how you talk to your board. This is how you fundraise. This is how you do a budget and stick to it. You know, in, in, in the theater, theater artistic directors have been not very well trusted in the American theater because they tend to blow budgets because I'm an artist. I need a mink yeah. coat in this performance. <laughs> Again, I'm a real chintz for, as, a, as an artistic director. I don't think I'm the norm. But um, I teach them how we at Northern Stage, we never go over our production budgets, ever. Sometimes we don't make the ticket sales numbers, some, but we do not overspend ever, and that's a really important thing to me. Mm-hmm. I also teach them... Um, and I'm still learning this, how to, how to speak in a way um, that maybe a, a predominantly male board really listens to you. I think sometimes we have to change our tone. Mm-hmm. I ran into an artistic director of a $17 million theater or $20 million theater who says she talks lower now as a woman leader. She talks lower as lower. in tone of voice. Tone of voice. I talk high. This is how I talk, and so I've sort of always, you know, I think about things like that, how to be a steady leader, how to be a calm leader, how not to walk into any of the, any of the stereotypes of maybe what women leaders right, have right. fallen into. When you say well, low, low voice, you know what I'm thinking of? I don't know if you know the story about Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, did is, she speak low? Uh, very Does low. she speak low? Very low, and she dressed like Steve Jobs. I saw that. Yeah, it's, uh, people shake, shake their head uh, about that. Uh, yes. But now you're kind of saying, well, if you want to communicate to an all-male all or mostly male board... You might need I mean, to speak a little bit differently. It's kind of mind-boggling to think about. I, I mean, as a but man, I, I'm, uh, intellectually I get it. But as a man, I'm thinking, boy, that's not genuine if you're doing that. So what, what are you doing? I you know, think just be who you are and, 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 and tell me your story. Tell I think it's genuine if you're if you're just opening a door to another part of yourself, yes. perhaps I didn't know I had that sort of calm, yeah. grounded yeah. part of my personality. Mm-hmm. I was a singer-dancer. So I think it's genuine. I really do. Once you find it within yourself. And then I'll go to a meeting with somebody else, a crazy playwright, and I'll talk very high <laughs> and fast. And fast. And have a great time. Right. 
Right. I think we're different people in different... I mean, I think we portray ourselves and use different tools in different rooms. I, I really like what you're doing with this group of, of, of women uh, protégés, really, yes. um, because uh, I've spent some time helping educators, K-12 educators, mm. principals and, and vice principals, heads of departments, uh, become more effective leaders. Yeah. And um, and you see this in healthcare. You see, uh, I, I mentioned uh, you know some chefs. I've worked with some chefs. Uh, on the same type of problem. And it turns out that it doesn't matter what field you're in, nonprofit or for-profit or artistic fields, uh, there's no replacement for, for nuts and bolts, strong leadership and, and strong business sense as well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we think that's different. You know, we're in the arts or we're in, we're in a restaurant. And I think that's it's a really right. dangerous uh, philosophy. I think, I, I think it's one of the reasons why we see more... I'm going to give you an example with school principals, K-12 principals. Um, uh, I needed to get in touch with a whole bunch of them for various things, and I found it more difficult to get time on the calendar of a high school or middle school principal than it was for me to get on the calendar of a Fortune 500 CEO. And and why why is that? It's not that they were that they didn't want to talk to me, but they weren't able to manage their schedule. They weren't That's able to prioritize. Exactly they didn't right. understand it. And. Uh, there's just you're, you're, it's like you're tying your hands behind your back to Absolutely. try to run, run whatever it is you're running. And I had never thought to go to business school or to read business books or anything before I did this. I couldn't keep up with my email when I first started this. We were a $2 million company. Now we're about a $5 million company. I Googled that whole getting things done series of, oh, yes. you know, how... And I'm a, I can get through my emails in two two sessions a day in about a half an hour, you know, e each. That's, and that's better than most people. That's, that's about sure. 150, 200 emails a day I get, and I answer them. So I agree with you. And that goes back to your restaurant thing. Mm. Leadership is really everything, and in certain areas of culture, I don't think – it was sort of, you don't have to be a leader. You're just a school principal. We don't need to teach you all of these things, but we do because you're right. the head and everything comes from us. And you know what I've also seen is sometimes there's resistance among, say, K-12 leaders and probably in other artistic fields. Absolutely. And the resistance is that, well, this is business people talking. You know, they're in it for the money. Uh, and, and they can't possibly understand this. They and don't that, understand and us. My, my favorite line, I get this from all sorts of people, is, well, we're different. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. when I hear we're different, um, the next part is we're different, therefore it's okay to fail. Right. It's okay to die as an organization. It's I agree. Completely, it's, it's the height of arrogance to say we're different, which means I cannot learn anything new. Right, right. And I feel like I'm learning something new every single day. And I feel like when I stop learning, put me out to pasture. Well, this is the theme of our, of our podcast, right? It's about learning, continuous learning, yeah. learning from from every aspect of life that we, that, that we can. Right. Um, let's take a quick uh, kind of last break, and then when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about some, uh, some of the personal events in your life that made you who you are today. Love it. Be Thank right you back. so much. We're back with Carol Dunn. Carol, thank you for a great conversation and sure. uh, lots of lessons learned already. Um, I want to go back a little bit when you... Um, and you were hired uh, to run Northern Stage. This was February 10th, 2013, and it was yeah. uh, obviously a powerful, uh, 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 an amazing opportunity, and you've talked a little bit about that. But, um, you know, that same week, just four days later, your husband, Peter, Peter Hackett, was yes. diagnosed with, with cancer. Yes. And if I could ask you kind of to reflect a little bit about what was going on in your yes. life and your head. And, and I've spoken to you so much about your gut. I always... I always wondered if I um, 
would have another opportunity running another theater. And then on, I, I remember when uh, the board chair spoke to me from Northern Stage about taking over the theater, um, feeling in that moment, oh, this is wonderful. I thought there would be this next step, maybe. I don't know if I'm ready for it. But I said yes to the conversations. Yes. And then four days later, uh, I was called out of a class because my husband, out of the blue, had been um, diagnosed with lymphoma. Mm. And and we knew from what we knew at the time that it was going to be a full year of really heavy stuff. And I said to him, I can't do it. And I called the people I'd been talking to in those four days and said, I can't do it. My family will hurt if I try to take on this other job. The theater I'm already r- running will be in bad shape. You were still at the New London. I was still running the New London Barn, and I actually ran both theaters for two years starting from that date, which I'll tell you a little bit more about. So I tried to quit. I tried to quit Northern Stage <laughs> um, in those four days. And my husband, I really... I'm grateful to him. He said, absolutely not. You have to do it. Mm. And to be honest with you, I really didn't even, I, I didn't want to. I was so scared by what life was handing to me then. I really wanted to use the excuse to not take on Northern Stage because I also had a gut feeling that two turnarounds in a row, two kids, that it was going to be so hard. And it was. So I, because of Peter, I said yes And I feel like I spent the first eight months of running Northern Stage, I was mostly in the hospital next to Peter, Hmm. uh, on the computer. And people asked me, how could you do that? And again, I think I was in the right place at the right time. I had to be helping Peter. He was wanted me to help this theater. I believe it goes back to your life philosophy, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. So in the midst of all of this awfulness, we have something a little bit bigger that we're trying to grow and make better. And somehow um, I felt very supported by the people at Northern Stage, and we got through it. But 2013 was the worst year of our lives. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Peter's well. Thank God. And thank God, and running Northern Stage, I will say, the first three years almost killed me. It's a hard, it was a hard job to turn around. I knew it'd be really hard, um, but I don't sweat the little stuff in the same way that I used to before, you know? Because of everything you had to go through. I'm a nicer wife. (laughs) I'm a nicer person Mm. because I'm more grateful. Mm. I'm grateful for the people around me. We learned some really good lessons. Um, So I think that's helped me to be that egoless leader a little bit that we talk about also. And to also have enough humility and to know some days you just... You can't be there. Some days I have to walk away. It's free, it's infrequent. Right. You know. You said you said a a, a couple of like kind of I would say mega leadership lessons right in right in that yeah. in that in that um, latter part of what you were saying. Um, you know, one don't is sweat about, the small stuff. You know, or? to be able to well, don't sweat the small stuff. Everyone says that. Not too many people do it. Not everything is so important. Right. In fact, um, many things are not that critical. And the problem is that. Uh, maybe, again, we're hardwired for this. I don't know. We care so much about what other people think about us. Yeah. But we cannot change that. Right. And uh, another thing people always say but have a hard time doing is, well, if you have no control over something, then don't worry about it. Just, you can't fix it. Right. And the more you worry about it, it, the penalty is only on you, not on anyone else. Right. 
Now it's hard to do. But Very you just, hard. But if you if you can't control something else, then just try to focus on what you can control and manage as best you can uh, yourself. And I think that's you know the way you're seeing saying that is so reasonable and it's calming me from across the table <laughs> here. I'm not that good, but what I've found is my heart. If it, let's say an actor is is really unhappy with their housing and I'm worried that they're going to quit, right? It hasn't happened. But mm. my heart rate goes up that night. I'm worried about it. I've learned that I will worry for about eight hours. And then after about that much time, I let it go. I can't let it go immediately. Mm-hmm. I try to solve it with everybody. I'm a fixer. I'm a pleaser. Right. But then I've learned. But the next day, you know, dawn comes and I've really learned to let things well, that's go. Good so it just takes about 12 hours for right. me. And you want to keep cutting that down. I less would like less. to keep cutting it down. But, that's but very what you're important. trying to do in that example, I mean, just one example, is you're trying to solve a problem and you have some ability to solve that that's problem right. by calling someone. Or, right. So that's... That, that that actually is not an example where you have no control over it. You, right. You have potentially some ability to, yep. to affect some, some action on that. Yep. And you try to do that. And the other thing I've learned is that, um, and this is a quote from the Grapes of Wrath, um, that it, uh, the ma in Grapes of Wrath says she's like a river, right? And a lot of times something bad will happen. But we, my company is a river, it will keep going. There are enough. There's enough great water going in the right direction that if there's a rock here, yep, that's going to stop a little bit of the water. But I really believe a well-run company will continue to move if it's set up in the right way, and that helps us not freak out about the rock. That's a fantastic metaphor. Can I borrow that one? When Take I work it. With senior executives? I stole it from Steinbeck, so you can have it. <laughs> well, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> I was in the Grapes of Wrath. It's not that impressive. I was in it for eight weeks, so I know every line from it Wow. when I was younger. Because, you know, uh, people think we're uh, – when you're successful, people tell you you're great. And yeah. who doesn't love hearing that? Mm-hmm. You love that. And the trick is to, okay, love it, enjoy it, and appreciate it, but then – you know, recognize that there's a lot more to, that that's going on. There's a lot more, a lot of other people that are involved. And in fact, that if you can set up your team, your organization, your family, whatever your unit of interest is at any point in time for success on their own to operate independently. I mean, to me, that's one of the greatest uh, markers of success of a parent that your kids are independent. That they totally don't, agree. They don't actually need you. They want you. That'd be good. Yep. But they don't. They don't really, really need you. I mean close occasionally but yes. they can they can function they can do that's what you want yes and it's the same thing with an, with an organization and it took me three years with both of them and I think w- when you're a startup or a turnaround yes. there's no river right no. everything's an emergency everything's around the clock and so always if you're in that situation it helped me to say but I know that we'll get this built so that in three years we'll get to that place where I know we have a body of work behind us that will keep going right right what you're doing is you're kind of digging out the canal to create that you create do that river you do. It's not there. You know, yeah. the other thing that you said that was that really struck me is use the word gratitude. And I'm I'm a big believer in the power of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Because when you appreciate other people, when mm-hmm. you thank other people, mm-hmm. uh, and you really you mean it, it's authentic, uh, you benefit probably more than they do mm-hmm. because it's just uh, again, I don't know where it comes from. It's something about how we're we're wired, uh, but Makes, it makes you feel good, and it's the right thing to do. And having gratitude for other people, as opposed to looking at other people as people that have to do what you need them to do to get the job done so you can be successful, et cetera, et cetera. That's what, 
the, the kind of the, the typical manager slash leader does until they get to this. And again, it requires a bit of a spiritual sense, I suppose. It does. Until they get to the sense that, you know what, a little bit of gratitude goes a long way for all sorts of good reasons. I agree with you. And I think I was a really selfish actress when I first started. It was all about me. It was you all have about to be I'm going to be the best. To be a, a, a good successful actor? I think in the beginning, in the beginning, you kind of do. You have to be selfish and for a lot of things, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I, I'm not sure where where that cutoff is, but even as a, you know, as an academic, I mean, you're working like crazy day and night to do this research very, yeah. very hard and very, and it is a 90% rejection rate. It's, it's not a simple thing. So that uh, so being you, able to be grateful It's all takes about you. It's all, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Um, I'm, so I'm just reflecting and wondering whether, whether there is an advantage to being grateful earlier in a career. I think there is intuitively. My is. gut Tells me yes. Yes. I don't know that I can put my finger on kind of the analytics around it. Or if when we were young, we could have opened up and been grateful. I was really bummed most of the time. (laughs) 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 Oh, I didn't get that job or, oh, you know. Well, your your experience with your your husband, Peter, Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, people talk about work-life balance and this was like life-life. But I know you have a point of view about work-life balance. So I'd love to know what you think about my point of view. So here I am in this uh, women, pretty much women-led company. We've got four pregnancies in the company, women who are having kids this spring, which is unheard of in the theater because our hours are so terrible. And my new managing director, Irene Green, um, has a one-year-old. And we were talking about this. She said, how do you do it? And how did you do it? And um, I've come around to there is no such thing as a work-life balance, but mm-hmm. that you as a, a leader or a, you as a family, you have a life. And your work is a part of your life. And your family is a part of your life. Mm-hmm. And the things you do on the outside is a part of your life. And not to think of them separately. That if we can have a holistic view so that whatever I do as a theater leader somehow trickles into or works into my family and vice versa, my family is invited to if a child is sick at school I make sure that they can come to the office mm-hmm. Kid, people can bring their kids to the office How, what do you think I mean is this we are setting it up at Northern Stage where you can have children and have a family we still have crazy hours but we support each other in it right. is that impossible for a law firm probably <laughs> for a law firm <laughs> yeah but I mean are there a lot of yeah, places so now where it can be one work life balance I don't know where it came from um, and it's been under attack for, for a variety of different ways uh, by by senior leaders uh, if the premise is that you could separate out your life to work and life I, I know where that comes from because for a lot of people and this is a big motivation for some of the research I did on, on leadership and how to help leaders become more effective as bosses um, for a lot of people, they, they don't like their work. They actually, they hate their work. And so they have to have the other. They have to have something else. That's where it comes from. And as long as you hate your work, yeah, you need some type of balance. Right. You, need, you need to go somewhere safe in a way. But not everybody hates their work. I wish that no one would hate their work. And would be, and if we had more effective leadership, it would help that problem a lot. Yeah. But the truth is that in many jobs, certainly what you're describing, certainly kind of in many professional spheres, uh, virtually any artistic endeavor I could think of, and more and more when it comes to kind of management leadership of, of kind of more traditional companies, uh, work and life uh, start to start to meld, meld together. Um, philosophically, we are only one person. We only have one brain. We only, we only have one body. And we're at work, we're, we're at home. It's the same body. It's the same person. the same brain cells that are working. It's not like they're two different places that we're, that we're going. Right. And uh, it's, in fact, one of the one of the thoughts that uh, I had in, in developing, kind of coming up with this idea for this podcast in the first place, the, the, the premise is that 
our personal life, uh, our personal life, and our professional life are not really separate lives. They're re- they're, there's only one life, so and are. and the more you think about that, and the more you kind of appreciate the reality of it, mm-hmm. uh, I think the more the more reasonable your life could be. Now, practically speaking, how to make that happen in mm-hmm. the law firm is yeah. it's always been a problem in yeah. in certain corporations. Some some companies actually are getting much better, especially when it comes to to women in the workforce. Recognizing yes. you want these superstar women mm-hmm. that, by the way, by between the age of 25 and 45, they're going to have a kid. They want to have a kid. Right. And do you want to lose them or you don't want to lose them? Right. And um, the reality is America's far behind many other countries. I agree. Uh, you know, the, the maternity or paternity leave. I, yeah. have, uh, I have nieces and nephews in Canada. And they, um, the moms uh, get um, almost uh, nine months to a year maternity leave paid yeah. and a guaranteed job to come back. Yeah. And, and the dads get, um, I think it's maybe two or three months. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it turns out, and there's a bit of research on this too, that when you look at the, the wealth of young couples, again, we'll, we'll say 25 to 40, for example, uh, they, they're about the same until the babies start happening. In America, they don't grow as fast, the total wealth, as they do in Canada. And it has a big part to do with this because it allows both people to keep their jobs. Fascinating. And so you want to talk about a win-win. It's a win-win. But it's a yes of, and. Yeah, yes, a yes, you and. can have this job and have a family. And in my experience, but yes, it's in the theater. Yeah. It enriches the families, enrich the theater, and the theater enriches the families. Now it's theater, but... I th- and so there are more I'm and more fields. So maybe, you know, when that. you're younger, if you're a younger person trying to figure out what you want to do, yeah. especially if you're a woman, but not only, uh, there are a lot of career tracks where this is possible more and more. It's, it's harder in some areas. But we also need to teach young women that it's possible. Mm-hmm. My managing director teases me that I lied to her about how hard labor is. She said, you said labor, <laughs> having a baby isn't that awful. I said, I know, I lied to you because yeah. I wanted you to, you know, get through it okay. And she teased me. But I really feel like, um, I'm really good at speaking to her about being a parent and a working parent. And we have to share those lessons. And I think that's been lacking in our culture. I yeah, think those yeah. those mentors, male and female, just towards young people, have a family, have a life, work here, be brilliant. And it's also, you know, there's this complication as well that's always been there, but now with the Me Too movement, I'll tell you the truth, there are a lot of men that are not sure what they could say to women on their teams. Isn't that true? They're uncomfortable, they're yes, not sure. Abs- no, they and can't they could talk have, about you know, they, they have exactly the best, you know, value and premise and they want to help but they're not they're not sure yep because because yeah they're not yep. sure and, that's a bummer and we I have think to figure at, that out uh, and i think part of it is there's, there's there, there was there's been an imbalance right with respect to how women have been treated in the workforce that's right and we're fixing that it's not fixing is too strong right. word, but we're going in the right direction that's and right. sometimes the pendulum swing swings a little bit but it does in fact i think um women um should uh if they feel comfortable enough uh, educate their male colleagues on what is on, on, on the conversations they they're, they're okay with because sometimes you end up losing those mentors yes. because they're afraid they're they not can't they're speak not sure and that that doesn't make I mean that's not a win that's not a good thing right you know right so work life balance um, yeah <laughs> one life one one that's life my hope. one yeah and <laughs> and what a, what I'm not going to say what a life you've had even though it's true uh, oh, because it's you. going on and on and on mm-hmm. and the career keeps on going and. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if if I can indulge you as our kind of wrap-up, you mentioned Judy Garland before, and I think, oh, Somewhere yes. Over the Rainbow, and I, uh-huh. it was my, one of my absolute favorite songs as a kid, and then we used to sing it to our, our daughter horribly, the way, we, uh, the way I sang, to be sure, but I wonder if you could sing a bit of that for us as well. Oh, we you're so sweet. I never get to sing anymore. Okay. Um, somewhere over 
over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow. Why, oh, why can't I? Carol Dunn, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much.